Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Literacy View. As always, we have a very, very special show for you. And this is one of those that is a breaking news show, um, ready for immediate release. And um, the article that we will be talking about is called Stories Grounded in Decades of Research, What We Truly Know About the Teaching of Reading. And the, uh, and the authors are Catherine Compton Lilly, Lucy Spence, Paul Thomas, and Scott Decker. And our special guest for this evening is Dr. Michael Path. Woo! And we met Michael on Twitter, now called X. And um, I've been following Dr. Michael Path Path for a long time. I'm getting tongue tied here. I don't know what's going on. I'm so sorry. And it's okay. such a pleasure to have you with us. Let me just. Uh, mention what your background is, Michael. Um, mm -hmm. Dr. Michael Path is a school psychologist at a high school in upstate New York, a licensed psychologist in private practice at Psychological and Educational Solutions of the Hudson Valley. And he is also an adjunct professor in the school psychology program at Marist College, He has almost 20 years of experience working with students from pre-K through college. And we are so happy to have you here, Michael, because when this article came out, I said, you're the man we have to have on. Oh. Interestingly enough, Michael, I shared this article with my husband. And after he read it, He said that Judy and I might need to replace the batteries and our bullshit buttons. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> we might be using that quite a bit tonight. Um, so <laughs> anyhow, so let's get started. Let's right. start off with your first impressions. How about that? Usually I ask a question. But okay. I just would love to know what your first impressions are after having read this article and um, knowing the background. By the way, this article uh, will be appearing in the Reading Teacher um, right. uh, journal, and that is with the International Literacy Association, ILA. So, right. yeah, so Michael, let's hear from you. Um, yeah, uh, well, the first thing I want to do is just say thank you for having me. I've, I've, you know, I've been following you for as long as <laughs> we've been following each other for, you know, the same amount of time. And I, I really I love everything that you're doing for bringing um, research and, and information about structured literacy and science of reading to everybody, you know, out there, both both you and Judy. And, and I've listened to a lot of your episodes, even. And I, I made a point of listening to the ones that I knew would be challenging. Like I, I really dug into the Dr. Uh -oh. Sam episode, man, I did. Um, and uh, yeah, and I got to say, like, I there needs to be a place where people who don't agree with each other talk about these things, you know, and um, and you don't have to come away agreeing. You know, I don't think anybody's minds were necessarily changed, but um, it was 
it was a really good it was a really good opportunity to hear the kind of reasoning you know that people who don't see reading the way we do right the the way that they think about reading and they think of the world and you know i bring up that one specifically and i know dr sam was not involved in this article so i'll i'll leave him out of the rest of the discussion because he didn't write this but it was funny because he spent so much time talking about, and we've heard other people make this argument that, you know, three queuing and balanced literacy is, it's something that you can do while you're teaching systematic synthetic phonics. And, you know, you teach kids to use context to cross check. I mean, I remember that word coming out a lot. And yes. I've, I've read that in a lot of sources. And, you know, you you both have backgrounds in reading recovery and balanced literacy. I'm not a teacher, but I worked in a lot of reading recovery schools. So I remember that word. And then I read this article where in the very first paragraph, they make a really obvious point of talking about how context isn't just for cross-checking. Context is what we should be teaching kids to do when they can't decode very decodable words. <laughs> like the poor kid couldn't read the word insect. Mm-hmm. And I I read the article and I'm like, of all the examples to pick, you couldn't have picked a tougher word, right? <laughs> like she got in. And then you wanted her to look at the picture of a bee and guess the rest of the word. All while insisting to us that this poor kid has well-developed phonics. And, you know, my first reaction was, I don't think she does. But you, as the authors of this article, as the teacher working with this poor kid, you haven't proven to me that you have any way of knowing that, you know? You did a running record. Well, okay, that doesn't tell you about phonics. and. Then you put this text in front of her. And by the way, they did they never told us how decodable the text was, whether it was an encyclopedia article about bees or a picture book about bees. And they're like, oh, she got stuck on the second part of insect, but look, she did the right thing because she guessed on the picture. What happened to cross-checking? What happened to we don't teach kids to guess? And I just read this whole article. And at the end of it, I mean, I was I was kind of pissed, you know, because of all the misrepresentations of the research, but the, at the end, I'm like, well, if this is the best they've got, I kind of feel good. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it was, it was stunning to tell you the truth. I mean, we could spend a whole episode just in that first paragraph, but that's yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, really we could. So Judy, you know, what are your thoughts? I mean, I'm with Michael, you know, with the words after, and insects. And all I could think of was, you know, these are supposed to be the scholars of literacy, and they use that word, the scholars. And, um, you know, I'm just so shocked at how little the authors knew about phonics to be writing an article about phonics and how it shouldn't be the only thing that's taught, and we'll get into that also, which is such um, a bunch of nonsense too. So um, Judy, why don't you um, tell us your thoughts about this? So when I started reading this article, no, let me give the backstory. So here I was, Ithaca, New York, visiting my son at college, and (laughs) 
you know, he did, he he was still sleeping. So I'm walking around the campus thinking, how do I spend my time? And then all of a sudden I get a text message and ironically, it wasn't from my son, Leo, but it was from my co-host, Faith Borkowski. She's like, Judy, did you see it? I said, no, what, what, what happened? And then, you know, Leo was sleeping. So, so we started to chat it up and she's like, you gotta see this. I said, Faith, we gotta do it because, you know, breaking yeah. doesn't have time to wait. Right. And right. she said, oh, the perfect person that we need to talk to. And she mentioned Michael and I was like, let's do it. And then like 20 <laughs> seconds later, it, the wheels started turning. Leo yeah. woke up. I said, brush your teeth, get ready do what you got to do. And Faith and I just set this up. And, you know, this is part of what our show is. It's not like these other podcasts that might prepare and might be, you know, working for different companies and so forth. We're in the classrooms. We're still working our butts off. And, you know, we see the kids all the time because we're working with them that are struggling and, there's been so much research that has said, you know what? Teaching kids how to decode is extremely important. And to see the same shit over and over again, <laughs> like disregarding something that's so important. I mean, I was in reading recovery, of course. And I say it every episode, there were many great things. There were things that have impacted me and will impact my instruction for the rest of my life with kids. But there were things that weren't that good. Um, we were teaching kids how to get their mouth ready for the first letter. We so didn't would you ever, letter. can I stop you? Would you yeah. ever teach a kid act ever? <laughs> no, you're going to take exactly what you're learning in your phonics block. And you're going to have those kids apply it. ER says er. Insect is a fully decodable word. Take your finger in. Yeah. Slide it through. Say in for syllable one. In. And then syllable two. Set. And then take your finger and slide through two syllables. Insect. There's nothing complicated. And I think that. stunning. It really is. It's unbelievable. I think part of it comes from not wanting to take ownership and responsibility of learning and learning how words work. Once you learn it, it's such powerful information. And once you really understand how words work and that they're not as tricky, tricky as we all thought they were, because. Okay. So so it's either. So Faith, it's either two, two things. It's either they don't get it. Either they don't care or either they don't believe all the research that's coming out. And it's basically an F you to the research. So, so Michael, take Judy's point now. What do you think it is? Oh, gosh. The three Um, choices. What do you think it is? Would you like my choices? Is that what it is? I was going to throw that out too and say, to me, it sounds as if they never bother to take the time to learn a structured approach. That's what it sounds yeah. like to me. What is your thought? So for, for, you know, your, your, your typical classroom teacher, that's my default is that if, 
if I'm talking with them and they say something like, you know, the word insect isn't fully decodable. And I've heard this, by the way, I don't know if this is something that you would have said as a reading recovery teacher. I'm guessing not, but I've heard people say that words like insect aren't fully decodable because like that, that C can make an S sound, you know, and which C can make two sounds, but not in that word. And just having different options for those different sounds doesn't make either of them not decodable, you know, but it's, it's just, it's a function of having a kind of a deep orthography, right? Like some words, the rules aren't as obvious as one letter, one sound. And I've heard some teachers say, okay, that means the whole thing isn't decodable. And when I hear something like that, or when I hear a teacher argue for using context to decode a word like that, my initial, my gut response, my default is exactly what you said, Faith. They just, they haven't learned about structured literacy. They are reflecting to me what they were taught. And I'm not you know, I see it as a like an opportunity to sort of say, that's not exactly true. And let's think this through. And, you know, but I, maybe I'm cynical. I'm generally not willing to extend the benefit of the doubt to people (laughs) who have tenure and in some time, in some cases, like endowed professorships at major universities. I'm sorry, that comes with responsibility. And I, I'm, I'm an adjunct, you know, I value, and I was full-time tenure track for a little bit before I decided that I missed working in schools with kids, but I, I see the value in, in academic freedom. I'm, I'm not anti-tenure or anything like that, but you can't just ignore current developments in the field you're teaching. It, these people need to be held to a higher level of responsibility. So either they don't know or they know. In either case, I don't care. (laughs) Right. I'm sorry, you know, which is why I'm not particularly generous toward the, you know, the Fountesses and Pinnells and and the Clays, you know, when she was around, because they have all the privilege in the world, that they have all the resources in the world. You know, I, I, I have spent the last two days looking up article after article after article, every citation I could find in this article we're talking about, I, I I jumped on my university access and I got every article I could find. If I can do that while working another full-time job and raising two kids, they could do it. So, you know, I don't know. Do they not know? Do they know and they don't care? I don't care either. Either way, they need to, they need to get it right. And right. yeah, that that's where I land on that. Exactly. You know, something, all I could say is when I first saw this article, you know, the Cher song, if I could turn back time. (laughs) (laughs) All I kept thinking was, this is so 1980s. Like, this is just something that doesn't feel like it was written in 2023. I cannot believe that people could be so behind the times. And like Judy said, either not caring enough, or just um, not taking the time to learn or, or just, you know, ignoring it and just saying, you know what, we're going to pretend it doesn't exist and double down on our own thoughts and just 
go with that. So Judy, um, you know, as I was reading this, and I'm going to ask you this question because yes. of your background, they mentioned the term multiple sources of information. They must have repeated very, very, like very 25 times, multiple sources of information. Yep. And I find that to be such a confusing term. We all know that reading is, um, you know, much more than just phonics. And every science of reading person I know has said that. So what are they talking about with multiple sources of information? In my mind, that means queuing. What does it mean to you? Tell me what this means, please. Well, when I heard that, I definitely thought of MSV right away, multiple sources of information. And the truth of it is, as readers, we do use multiple sources of information when we're um, figuring out words. But what the problem with was with the queuing for early readers is that we were telling kids that are just learning how to read to do does it make sense? Does it look right? Does it look sound right? Like that's a hell of a lot of information that that early reader didn't need to tackle as their first course of action. The first course of action, which was ignored, was you know the sounds that this word makes. Let's slide through it and make those sounds. Let's decode it. And then as you're decoding, very often you are confirming, right? Because you're going to but that's not going to be the first course of action is not going to be, oh, it doesn't matter what the letters say. Just think about what makes sense. No. Right. The goal is always right. meaning, but we placed uh, reading recovery. People placed so much attention on meaning as the first course of action, potentially. And does it sound right? And does it look right? Whereas it should have been, let's teach kids how to decode well. And that will help with integration of the word and understanding the text. And of course, once you break the reading code fully, you're going to have to focus more and more on the higher comprehension skills and the strategies and so forth. And you're working on that even in decodable text too, maybe not at the same level. Nobody's saying, no, 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 we're ignoring meaning. No, 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 we're ignoring language structure. But we are prioritizing teaching kids how to read the words rather than guess, or even if you're not teaching them how to guess, they're guessing if you don't know the code. And I think the unfortunate truth is that articles like this, instead of helping moving things forward and uniting as literacy practitioners, it's just taking away from the ultimate goal, which is to help kids read. And I find it so unfortunate that Reading Recovery missed an opportunity to say, you know what, we did many things really, really well, but there's some things we could have done way better and shift, including using decodable text. And this whole nonsense about how shitty decodables are Maybe they need to spend a little time looking at quality decodables. So that goes back to what we were saying. I don't think they really are looking at what's happening now and and the science. So we so have to all of that. Hey, the, you know the all the authors probably better than I do. Um, who are all of they? 
What are their backgrounds? How often You're talking about the authors of this article. Yeah, there were a lot of names in the article. I mean, I've seen Paul Thomas all over the place, but like in general, were any of these people like reading recovery practitioners? What are they doing? To be honest with you, Judy, no, I really don't know the backgrounds. The only thing I read was at the end. Oh, actually, it's at the the front page of the article about who they are. And they're all from South Carolina um, and they're professors. But I really don't know what their backgrounds are, except the very last name on here, Scott Decker, is he has a specialty in neuroscience. And I want to ask you, Michael, so, you know, he's a professor of psychology. You're a psychologist. What Mm -hmm. say you? What, like, what are your thoughts about um, this person being part of this article? Um, If he's a neuropsychologist or he knows about neuroscience, don't you think that he would recognize that this kind of just doesn't make sense. What are your thoughts about that? Um, yeah, and he's he's the only name other than Paul Thomas's, because like you said, Judy, I've seen him all over Twitter, but uh, he, he's the only other name I recognize. And honestly, I've read a lot of Scott Decker's work, and I really, I, I have a lot of respect for him. Um, he co-wrote one of the, uh, a major like, book on uh, in essentials of you know using this uh, book that uh, for a test that I use a lot so I have a lot of respect for his background um I don't know him personally I've I've never interacted with him but you know everything else I've read with his name attached I've always been like oh that's you know he, he knows his stuff um I guess I I can't really answer about why would he get involved in something like this I do know At first, my first read through of this article, when I read the part that I think he probably had the biggest hand in writing, you know, because you can tell um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you can you can kind of hear different voices. And even if I don't know who these people are, I just you know, I know that some of them are teacher, teacher trainers. This guy's a neuropsychologist. So, you know, kind of in the middle, they go into the neuroscience of reading. And I thought to myself, okay, here's where here's where Scott Decker came in. And on first read, it all made a lot of sense. And I I actually, if you, you know, if I just like read this out to you, there's probably nothing here any of us would disagree with, you know, Um, our brains develop reading networks that connect visual images, language patterns, sounds and meaning, right? Um, Over time, our brains become increasingly tuned to recognize and process written words. They build different networks. Um, even the point that relates back to the multiple sources of information thing, I mean, there are different networks in the brain for processing the visual information of the letters as as opposed to the sounds of the letters, as opposed to the meaning of the word once you recognize the word. You know, I mean, Carl Sagan said it best, the brain is a really big place in a really small space. That's so right. we get that it's really complicated, you know. Um, so like I said, I don't, I don't think... I don't think there's anything in there to disagree with, but I do have to say I I read I read every reference I could get a hold of, okay, in that section, and there were only a few articles that I I tried everything I knew and I couldn't get a hold of them, okay, and 
the but I still I could read the abstract. So I kind of got, you know, the gist of what was going on. Um, the uh, Frederiki one, the Spence and Nitra. Well, that's a book. Uh, the Binder meta analysis. These were all either reviews of other studies or, you know, like I, the, the Spence one is a book that was written for educators. So it's like a review of research, but these they weren't doing their own research. But I read gosh, that, that, that first article, it's um, it's in the it's the very first one referenced in the paragraph about Brittany's brain developing. Um, and then they go into you at all identified anatomical overlap between semantic and phonological subnetworks that activate phonological processing, word recognition, and semantic processing, right? And you know what I found? It's kind of interesting. Um, and I have to say, this is another example of where I hold these authors accountable for not actually communicating clearly. Um, that first reference, uh, it, it does, in fact, it does, in fact, demonstrate that over time, as children's brains become increasingly tuned to recognize and process written words, they build visual neural networks for reading. OK, and that article does indeed prove that when children are reading individual words in Polish. <laughs> OK, um, not English. Yeah. Now, Polish, I, I don't know Polish, and it. I'm actually not even questioning that those results might not generalize to English. They mm -hmm. might. But I just I feel like there might have been better references, okay? The the second reference to the U et al, where semantic and phonological networks overlap, um, those children were reading Chinese, not English. And I don't know Chinese. I'll be the first to admit that. But I do know it's not an alphabetical language. So I, they're reading pictures. So it makes sense to me that phonological and semantic networks would overlap if I'm if I'm reading pictures, right? Not there's nothing to phonetically decode in Chinese. And then and they did that again. There was another article, there's another reference. Um two or three paragraphs later, um, beginning readers often rely extensively on letter-to-sound processing, but with experience, they learn to integrate visual and semantic processing. That one's also about reading Chinese. So I, and, oh, and, and that one, by the way, the sample was half adult. So they're using neuroscience in a different, about people reading a different language. And some of them were older, right? Um, and they're and they're trying to generalize this to young children learning to read English. That doesn't make I gotta say. Sense. It doesn't make any sense. We, you know, we have a graphophonemic language, right? It's sounds and letters and... They're talking about, you know, pictures. And um, so why, again, it doesn't make any sense to me. From what I hear you saying is the um, psychologist, um, Scott Decker, spoke in generalities, like the things that you were saying were not very specific, like, yeah, we know the brain is complex. We know. So the part that he had in this, from what you're assuming, is that it wasn't getting into the nitty gritty to prove no. otherwise. And it certainly doesn't. And, you know, it's funny because I also, one of the few times Paul Thomas and I have actually interacted on Twitter. Um, and I've, I've heard... I've heard Dr. Sam say this. 
and this has come up in reading recovery references too. Mark Seidenberg, a guy we all know and love and admire, has reminded the science of reading community, I think correctly so, that in many ways, the neuroscience does not, it tells us what's going on, but it doesn't always tell us how to translate that into classroom practice. It's not ready for prime time in that sense. And I totally agree. Yes. But now we're using neuroscience to defend 3Qing. You know what I'm saying? Like, pick one, pick a lane. Either the neuroscience tells us what to do in the classroom or it doesn't. But if it doesn't, it certainly doesn't say, hey, teach kids to guess words. Yeah. You know, this is me off that so many people will talk about reading recovery and, and they didn't have those years of experience working with those kids. How many years have they been sitting with kids? I, I sat in that role for four intensive years. I saw the kids that were struggling. I saw a couple of kids that were doing well because, you know, we, now research is telling us you could probably spin upside down and some kids will do well, but some kids really weren't doing well. And it pisses me off when people come just because they have the word maybe, and not you, Michael, but they'll have the word doctor and that they think they're an expert. Meanwhile, some of those people weren't sitting in the field with these kids in reading recovery for so long. And then they become these spokespeople for reading recovery. And then you're like, hmm, something doesn't make sense. Something doesn't make sense. That's Mm -hmm. when meaning is really, really being impacted. And I think, you know, what really struck me about this article and actually kind of made me really sick was when they mentioned that there's a manufactured reading crisis. So mm-hmm. have these people been in the schools? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm going back every day of the week and there are tons and tons of kids that cannot read. And this has been happening now for a very, very long time, more so than ever before. And um, I work in the South Bronx and, um, you know, unfortunately, I see a lot of kids struggling. We're making some good moves in my building. So hopefully things are getting better. But, you know, these problems aren't limited to the South Bronx because I live in Greenwich, Connecticut. Faith lives in Long Island. We're in pretty wealthy neighborhoods and we're tutoring with a lot of kids that are struggling, too. So for this article to say that it's a manufactured reading crisis I would love for these individuals to walk around schools, to take a look at the Acadian screener data. Now that schools are doing screeners, I'm not seeing all green on these, uh, a blue, blue, which is actually um, above grade level or green, which is on. I'm seeing a lot of red on the screen. So for those individuals to make a blanket statement that says that it's a manufactured reading crisis, When's the last time they sat with kids? When's the last time they sat and looked in some screener data? Let's do it, Faith. Let's, Let's do, do it. it. I think that's. <laughs> there you go. It's bullshit. Yes, it is bullshit. And it I'll add, is bullshit. Michael, when go was ahead. the last time they worked in a high school where they saw kids who, 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 who did make it through elementary school? And because their schools were using things like the Fountas and Pinnell benchmark assessment to track them, which has the reliability and validity of, I mean, it's trash. I can't, yeah, I can't even think of a good analogy. It's just, it's, it's a trash assessment. 
and it misses more kids with problems than it correctly identifies, and it identifies more kids with problems than it correctly identifies as not having problems. That was an awkward way to say it, but you know what I mean. You know, these kids make it through, and then they arrive in like eighth grade, ninth grade, tenth grade, and they're in biology, and they're in chemistry, and they're in they're they're hitting all this academic vocabulary, and the volume of reading expected just explodes. So they've got to do more reading than they've ever done before. And deoxyribonucleic acid was never on any goddamn word wall. So they can't decode these words. And that's when they're hitting a wall, right? Like literally. And it's they are curriculum casualties in their own way. And mm-hmm. it's I'm not, I'm not saying they all should have been identified with learning disabilities or anything like that. My God, no. It's just somebody at some point should have taught them to decode words that they can't recognize immediately. And the need for that in some kids just genuinely doesn't become obvious until much later on when the people who are sitting right now in Paul Thomas's classroom as elementary educator candidates, they, they're they out of their classrooms years later, right? But the effects are still there. Um you know, the other thing about the reading crisis is, is they keep saying NAEP, 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 and NAEP proficient doesn't mean proficient on state tests, and NAEP basic is, you know, more challenging than many state standards. And I believe that, I guess. I'm only familiar with New York and um, Pennsylvania state standards, because I used to work out there. I haven't worked there since 2015, so they've probably changed. But, you know, I, but I, I wonder if they've actually looked at what differentiates NAEP basic from proficient? Because I'm sorry, maybe I'm crazy, but I actually think we should shoot for proficient because some <laughs> of the idea, <laughs> right? Like, you know, Paul's thing is we've, 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 there's been no decline in NAEP proficiency. Well, yeah, if it's been roughly a flat line for the last 20 years, but the flat line is telling us that many, 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 many students are not attaining proficiency. That's a problem. And some of these skills for proficient, I mean, I, I actually, hey, look at that. I have it up in front of me. Um, <laughs> you know, to get to proficient, you have to, among other things, um, integrate information across several paragraphs to represent the primary reason for a character action in a story. You have to recognize the best description of what a speaker is suggesting you have to be able to sort events referred to or described in a story according to when they occur. I don't know, call me crazy, but I feel like those are good fourth grade goals that maybe we should help, we should teach every kid to meet, right? Like, yeah, it doesn't well, I say. Think, I think, I think the problem is, you know, for so long um, in education, I think people were looking at some standards and for some reason, there were the, you know, foundational skill standards, but people weren't really looking at them at all as they were writing their lessons at all. And it's it, it's mind boggling why we ignored them. Either we didn't we we didn't know how to teach them or somebody told us they weren't important. And that's freaking bullshit. And you know what really is bothering me also about this article? Teaching reading is political. Now, guess what? There are Republicans that want kids to read. There are Democrats that want kids to read. <laughs> there are libertarians that want kids to read. There are independents that want kids to read. Teaching reading is not political. Teaching re- reading is a civil right 
that every human being on the planet deserves to have. And when they start this BS that it's political, it's really divisive. And well, that's, that's on purpose. Don't, that's by design. That's that's design. by design. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's sickening. And the people that say, you know, this is a, you know, um, a right wing agenda. No, it's not. No, it's not. Yeah, I, I think I mean, I, I, I understand that statement two ways. And I think if they mean I agree with you. I think if they mean, you know, only only Democrats and only Republicans want this or that, I of course that's that's not true. You know, and I'm I don't know your political beliefs. I'll I'll happily just say I'm I'm a very, very liberal Democrat, you know. Um, but I know that the what I'm arguing for now, there are people across the political spectrum who are gonna agree with on the other hand, you know, there are political forces in education. There's there's there there are gigantic corporations pushing into schools. There are, you know, there there are there's a lot of money at stake in this debate. And so in that sense, it is political. It I, we could say it shouldn't be, but it but the fact is it is, right? Like we there are vested interests, let's just put it that way. Mm-hmm. Any but the thing is, it's not all on our side here. I mean, you know, Billy Molasso just said that they're filing the suit in Ohio because Rena Recovery has to keep their business open, yeah. right? Yeah. And we have Gay Sue Pinnell driving around in a Maserati and Irene Fountas with seven houses. I'm sorry, but they have, again, I'll say it again, They have, these people have enormous amounts of privilege and vast sums of money that they have earned selling their particular program for how to teach kids to read. So- one thing that brings me to the science of reading is not, I mean, it's its its that I think I understand the science well enough to know what I should advocate for, but it's also that I want, I don't want these rich people to have a vested interest in how my kids learn to read or kids who don't have the privilege or kids who don't have privilege. Like every kid has this, uh, it is a matter of social justice. It's a civil right. And if your business model depends on Kids in this school and that school and that school not learning to read effectively. I'm sorry, you're going out of business tomorrow. As far as I'm right. concerned, right? And 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 the truth so is that there's going to be something. So, Judy, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want to just jump in here. Yeah. So, you know, I know what you're saying, Michael, as far as um, you know, special interest groups, and they, they have that on on both sides. I do want mm-hmm. to go back to something you said with the NAEP scores and proficiency. Yeah and basic. And this kind of goes back to what we're talking about here. You know, it's very easy for someone in their position to say basic is acceptable, that basic kind of just cuts it and that, you know, uh, that that's okay for kids. I'm sure it wouldn't be okay for their own kids. I am sure a score of basic would not be okay if they were talking about their own children. But for someone else's children, that seems to be acceptable. And that yeah. was kind of the tone I felt in this article when they started to talk about poverty. Oh, you have to consider that their backgrounds, the kids' backgrounds in poverty and um, nutrition and all these extraneous things to make excuses for not 
changing reading instruction. I mean, did you get that feeling, Michael, when you were reading this, that they did talk a lot about all these other factors that are involved. And we know, of course, naturally, there are always other factors involved. You're a psychologist. Of course, home life is is important and their backgrounds are important, but that should not be an excuse not to teach the kids in a structured, explicit, systematic way. Your thoughts on that? Oh, I totally agree. And I... You know, and you said it shouldn't be acceptable for their kids. And I agree. I I mean, it wouldn't be. And if we look at if we break down NAEP scores by by race and ethnicity, there are huge gaps that that shouldn't be acceptable to anybody. Right. So, you know, it's one thing for them to say there's been a plateau. But but still, you know, there the more at risk children are scoring worse. And we we are not okay with that. And that's that's further evidence that this whole, oh, there is no crisis, you know, there is. Sorry. Um, look at the racial breakdown. Look at the breakdown on uh, of, of which kids are most at risk and they are scoring lowest. That's a crisis. Um, as for as for other things affecting reading and learning, I mean, of course, you know, I spend <laughs> I, 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 I've worked pre-K through 12, but my job right now is at a high school. So I spend most of my day believe it or not, not talking about reading. Um, probably 75% of my job right now is mental health counseling. And, you know, working very closely with my colleague who's a social worker to work with kids whose families are in need and arranging services. And, you know, it's that's that's a whole other world for me professionally. But suffice to say, I get it. And, you know, I, I work very closely with kids who have so many things going on in their life right now. Now that learning is the last priority, so to speak. Not that they're incapable, but just there are things pulling them out. There are things affecting their learning. And that's true. And that's all the more reason that, number one, there are people like me in schools. Teachers should be concerned with that. But also, it's my entire job, right? So sometimes if a teacher comes to my office and says, Tino, can you check in with so-and-so? I have a feeling there's something going on. Part of the reason I love having my job is because I can say, yeah, I got that. Now you go back to delivering your your content. You know, you go back to being a teacher. You handle that. I'll handle this. Right. We divide and conquer and that and schools need to be prepared to do that. And we also need to make sure that if we're thinking about the teachers who are teaching reading, we are giving them the most high quality instructional materials and all the knowledge they need to implement the very best instruction for their kids. Because there are kids who are so at risk that we cannot afford to mess around with instruction that we know does not work for the vast majority of kids. But according to this article, they seem to think that they are talking about high quality instruction and that the science of reading only focuses on phonics and that this girl, um, uh, uh, Tisha, who was um, reading and wasn't um, getting the connection, they said this, she is doing exactly what science of reading advocates including her teacher, asked her to do. But as we will argue further, 
this is not enough. In fact, based on decades of reading research, continuing to focus only on phonics is educational malpractice. Cite your sources. That's what I say. Cite your sources. Because none of the research that they cited in in this paper says that. So that is a lie. There you go. Research do not say that continuing to focus only on phonics is educational malpractice. In, in, in fact, I'm going to back up to the sentence before the one you started with. What, what we do know is Taisha doesn't need more practice with letter sound correspondence or phonemic analysis. I mean, she needs more than that, right? Because unlike what they keep saying we say, nobody in the science of reading says only teach phonics. I mean, nobody. that's just... Nobody. Nobody. I mean, such episode after episode of the Literacy View, we talk about the five pillars and writing continuously. Yeah, it's not a... Right, they're pillars. Yeah, there are five of them. Yeah. Talk about multiple sources of information. There are multiple things right there, right? Um, But, you know, I'm sorry. I think she does need... If she's decoding letter by letter... She mm-hmm. does need more help processing phonetic information and Correct. drawing attention to letter clusters and the fact that not just, you know, letters don't have a one-to-one correspondent with, with, with each sound. So, but, you know, Kathy, and I'm, I'm picking the author out here because she names herself in this part of the article, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Um, Kathy doesn't know what she doesn't know. <laughs> Kathy's assessments are telling her, you know, oh, we did, uh, let's see, she she correctly identified the sounds for all 26 letters, and then we jumped straight to reading words. That's 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 your phonics assessment? That's not a phonics as- assessment. Come on, that's a letter sound assessment and then a sight word reading assessment. Yeah, we didn't so, look at a lot of the sounds. We didn't look at like those other more, like the diphthongs and the vowel teams that carefully. There's so much more to reading than just the individual phonemes of yeah. letters. But this is a person who doesn't understand phonics. This teacher of teachers doesn't understand phonics. And again, for her. The last time they looked at a scope and sequence and really looked at it and thought about it. No. Yeah. Clearly, I don't think ever. So, you know, this, this poor kid does need more work with that. It's not all she needs. Of course, we need lots of good instruction on vocabulary and morphology and spelling and comprehension and read alouds and knowledge building. I mean, we could all go on and on with all the other things. Like if this kid were in front of us, all the other things we would do with this kid, right? Not just phonics, but she does need more phonics. Um, so no, that 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 entire paragraph is 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 a lie. Yes. And I'm gonna just say it. Yeah. Well, I know, Judy Preston, I don't know if everybody heard, but the BS button was used a couple of times um, tonight. So it's unfortunate, Faith, because you did buy a cheers button. You invested your hard-earned money on it. (laughs) And unfortunately, tonight, Michael, we like you, but we haven't been able to press the cheer that much for this article. No, I'm cheering for what Michael is saying, that's for sure. But Where is the cheer button? Do you have it? I have it. Do you well, have give it? Out, give mine still in the box tomorrow. I, I'm going to cheer soon. You'll see. I, I know it's coming up. But <laughs> Faith, what do you think of the name Mel Duke being thrown in on a list? I see Ooh. some interesting little lists. Oh, I'm yes. I'm very happy you mentioned that, Judy. So 
So, Judy, why did you mention Nell Duke? Anyhow, why? what do you think about that? Well, you know, so I see a couple of names here. We have the University of Georgia, Donna Alverman. We have David Ranking. And we have uh, Pearson at the university. So all these names were here. But I thought Nell Duke was supportive of the science. So I was a little bit surprised that yeah. it says that. I wonder if this is a table of highly. It says this is a table of highly respected researchers who whose research challenges the science of reading. So does anybody know more about that? Because I would love to know because now Nell's name is on this chart. <laughs> Do you see it, Faith? Is Nell responded? Oh no. No, no. no. Wait, that's more breaking news. Michael, tell us. More breaking news. Here we go. Please Ready? share. Please share. Right. So, you know, the, again, I was trying my hardest to stay off of Twitter yesterday because I knew it would come out here. But I did. I tweeted a few things, as I do. And, um, you know, I, 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 ref I said none of us, basically, in Science of Reading have ever suggested such a thing, right? So um, Dr. Kelly Grillo asked she tagged Nell under one of my tweets and she said did Nell see her reference in this article I'm wondering her thoughts because I watch her use the science and I respect her work so Dr. Nell K. Duke responded thank you for your kind words I am as confused as you are about my inclusion in that table I am writing to the authors Whoa. so and I I love it, you know, because I, I read that too. I'm like, no, Nell Duke does not. I know. was thinking she would not be happy about her name being. Can't her. be, can't be. I, maybe I, I, I couldn't even. There we go. We got to cheer. <laughs> wait, babe, you're cheering? What are you, wait, wait, are you cheering Nell's I'm name? I'm cheering Nell that she actually said oh, she's going. Not, yeah, of course, I'm sharing her that she's actually not pleased with this and she is going to write to them. Yeah, yeah. That yeah, is fascinating, fascinating wow. stuff. All right, so here's my um, next question, Michael. Um, they mentioned something in here. Let me just find it for a second. And they called, oh, yes, they said that um, it's that the science of reading people um, make exaggerated, misleading and false statements. Did you see that in the article? Ex and those oh, were the words, yeah. exaggerated, misleading and false statements. Now, again, I've seen things that people say are the science of reading and probably it's questionable, but um, I think we would all agree that not everything has um, the science behind it, but when they talk about it being like a side, like, you know, like they make exaggerating, misleading and false statements to me, isn't that, you know, the pot calling the kettle black. I mean, I am just like so confused by that. Michael, your thoughts on that? If yeah. You can. No, I mean, I, part of me will agree with them because as you said, we've all seen people 
make statements that maybe take the science a little too far. I, I, too far might be the wrong word. Maybe get out over their skis a little bit. You know, like like it, there's some tentative evidence, but people take it as you know obviously settled. Right. Um, some of the examples that they give, like an exclusive focus on phonemic awareness and phonics. Okay, again, nobody's focusing exclusively, but I I do think that within the realm of phonemic awareness and instruction, you can overdo that. You know, mm-hmm. I think that the evidence is pretty clear that kids need to segment and blend. I think yeah. even though David Kilpatrick will say advanced phonemic awareness, you know, his theory is that it it it, it it's it could be very helpful for kids who are having difficulty reading, but his theory thus far hasn't quite been tested, right? David Kilpatrick will say that. Uh, some people are impl- implementing Hegarty with every student in an elementary school. I think that's, I don't know if we're there yet, right? So I agree, we can absolutely go too far and and we can become... Um, almost as dogmatic in some ways as some of the people that we're constantly arguing with, right? Yes, I would um, agree. Yeah. Like decodable texts. I mean, I agree with you, Judy. Decodables can be wonderful, but I don't think it would be appropriate, nor do I think you have suggested it, to like make a kid stay in decodable for years, right? But, but I have also, seen yeah, people... a window of time. A short window of time. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I will agree that... Nobody should be interpreting the science beyond what the science would warrant, right? I just, but it's pot calling the kettle black, like you said, because here they are telling us that badly cited neuroscience on adults reading Chinese means that kids reading English should use multiple sources, including context, to guess words, you know, or 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 they're or they're 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 telling us that we're the ones with you know, million dollar vested interest in, in selling our programs. And yet I'm sorry, Billy Molasso and reading recovery are suing the state of Ohio to keep their doors open because they're losing business. And this is a million dollar industry. Balanced literacy is a million dollar industry. So don't talk to me about corporations and profit. I agree with you that it's problematic, but it's not just not on our side. Um, Sorry, I'm going to call it like I see it. I I agree with you, Michael, but I think that the same is going to hold true. We have to be careful with what material people label as the science of reading or as approved by the Mm -hmm. science of reading or evidence-based. So, you know, I think we all have to be informed consumers no matter what we believe in, right? Because now there's going to be probably an uptick um, in materials that aren't great that say they are the science of reading. Like recently somebody posted a decodable. I'm not going to say the company that wrote the decodable, but it like made my stomach turn because there were total references to looking at the picture. And um, oh, I was like, yeah. wait a minute. Yeah, so I, I think, exactly what I think this whole experience has made me now more skeptical. And I think the way that you can arm yourself in these type of situations is by just becoming more informed about the research and science and really doing it in the field with kids. Teachers, sit there with those kids. That's how you know it. That's how you start to... And and Michael, the same with your profession. You probably do a lot of stuff with kids as well. 
You have to work with those kids. You have to see what they're doing when they're struggling or how they're, you know, figuring out how to decode words. You know, a lot of these people, when's the last time you sat with a kid? When's the last time you listened to a kid? When's the last time you walked those buildings of those classrooms and saw kids taking those screeners or administered those screeners? And, you know, we mentioned running records, you know, I think I did them better a little bit than some people, but there were so many flaws and they were so time consuming and there was no consistency. And yes, they didn't follow a scope and sequence. Now, did I gain some information? Probably. But was it the best tool? No. And there's tools that do much faster in a couple of seconds and um, that follow a scope and sequence and will tell you strategically uh, which phonics skills to work on and tell you if the kid understood the passage. But I think that, you know, unfortunately what happened in education is so many people got attached to things and sometimes they got attached to things like, you know, some readers are, have, have formed bad habits. Some administrators have formed habits, right? They saw running records <laughs> in their buildings for what 20 years they saw level libraries they don't, don't want to let it go they don't want to let, let it go because so i'm going to jump in hard to let go of what's familiar yeah so at the end of the article um it says here so um here as we consider recent debates we must ask ourselves why are the top reading literacy scholars in the world challenging narrow definitions reading and the science of reading. And then they jump to this. Um, they are highly accomplished scholars who have committed their professional lives to understanding reading. They hold positions in top universities around the world. They do not challenge the science of reading for personal financial gain. And then they said this, they oppose the science of reading because it is wrong, reductive, and does not serve all children. I must have passed out. I think That's uh, when I, <laughs> that article, I told you guys before I came on, I think I passed out because I was reading it. I must have passed out at that part. Okay. All <laughs> I say is, you know, if this, if we're talking about scholars who think that after an insect needs context to figure it out, we're in yeah. bad shape. Michael, yeah. your final thoughts and anything else that you want to add that I didn't mention? I mean, uh, you know, so grammatically, let's look at that second to last sentence. They oppose the science of reading because it is wrong, reductive, and does not serve all children. That's actually a much, much, much more strident, black and white, totally uncharitable way of characterizing us than we have actually used for them, right? I mean, again, I just got done listening to you two interview Dr. Sam. And like I said, even I will admit the guy's not wrong sometimes. You know, yeah. um, I didn't have I, a field day with him. I didn't have a field day with him. No, but no you, I didn't either. Right, but you're right. It would not all the time. That's right. But, no, but they are saying the science, they post science of reading because it is wrong. 
period. They could end the sentence there. They didn't say wrong, reductive, or doesn't serve the needs of all children. They said and. So they oppose science of reading because it is wrong. So the science of reading is 100% wrong, according to the authors of this article. Now, the authors of this article provided zero quality research to support what they were saying. Again, zero. Zero. Right? Zero. But, But also, the characterization of the science of reading that they are saying is wrong is the world's biggest straw man. Right. They 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 burned so many straw men in this article that like I put solar panels on my house a few years ago. They've totally whatever caught carbon offsets I got. They they put it right back into the atmosphere. We need to be worried about global warming even more because they just built a whole series of giant straw men and burned them to the ground. (laughs) And then they said the science of reading is wrong. Well, duh, when you put it like that, when you say it's only phonics, right? Correct. Only. Right. Yeah. We also agree that's wrong. They won't actually correctly characterize what the science of reading is. Yeah. They will not, you know? <laughs> and I'm sorry that <laughs> this got Mel Duke's attention because when, you know, when I talk about the science of reading, I think about the active view of reading. And I talk about that all the time. And I refer to that in my evaluations and in my professional development. And when I'm working with teachers, like if you want just one really good, like current article about what's the state of the science of reading, I give them Duke and Cartwright, Mm -hmm. right? Because that's everything. That's decoding. That's comprehension. That's morphology. That's bridging. That's executive processes. That's active engagement. They're saying that's wrong. I don't... That's not wrong. You know what? Because she does cross the aisle. And what you know what I mean by that. Um, Yeah, she just wrote with something with P. David Pearson. So, yeah, she gets along with everybody. Yes, yes, because she can pull from everything. And so there are certain people like Nell Duke. But there are very few out there because most of them would just not even bother, you know, dealing with this kind of nonsense. But she does cross the aisle. Judy, any last thoughts you have? No, I just, uh, I, I, first of all, I can't wait to hear from Nell. I thank Michael tremendously. I mean, 24 hours later and here, here you are. And, you know, it's a work night, it's a Monday night. And uh, this is totally unfiltered, unrehearsed, and we're releasing it tomorrow morning. I can't wait to hear what our audience has to say. I appreciate it. And I can't wait to hear what the other side has to say. That's why we're known as the Liberty View. Everybody has their view and we're trying to get everybody talking. Um, Other than that, I'm going to wrap up. Is that fine, Faith? Yeah, I also, before you do, I just want to thank Michael also for joining us. You, and I knew you were going to hit the nail on the head and cheers to you. Thank you. um, We are so appreciative. And I just want to tell everyone, not only are we releasing this, but we are releasing one of our writing research episodes because November is writing research on the literacy view. And we have a really special show. So it's going to be a double header awesome. tomorrow. So one will be the real research 
And on this show, we're talking about the BS. <laughs> so it's a good balance it. of um, the literacy view. So, all right, Judy. It's going to be known as it's going to be known as two episode Tuesday. Yeah, two, two episode Tuesday. Episode Tuesday. I like that. Great. I can't Tell wait. Where you can find us. All right. So thank you. And you could find us on Facebook, The Literacy View, Real Teachers Letting Loose. Follow us on The Literacy View on Instagram. Follow us on our personal Instagrams at BoxnerDamsky. Follow Faith at High Five Literacy. Follow us on Twitter slash X at BoxnerJudy. Follow Faith on Twitter slash X at Faith Borkowski. Follow us on on our YouTube channel, The Literacy View. Follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all those other good things. Real Teachers Letting Loose, The Literacy View. Faith, did I forget anything? No, I think you did it. And please subscribe to our channel. And the biggest compliment you could give us is sharing the work that we're doing with all your friends, colleagues, teachers, administrators, um, psychologists, speech pathologists, parents, just share away. Thank you. Thank you so much. And um, Dr. Michael Path, uh, his information will be on the show notes and how you can get in touch with him too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great night.